<laughs> so um, last week, just when we left, remember last week, I, I don't remember the whole of what I said, two weeks ago, that's really a long time ago. I don't remember exactly what the, the how we ended up, but it was, we were, it was the ethics morning and we were talking about ethics and we were talking about uh, the bliss of blamelessness and how badly one feels when one acts out of, um, out of uh, connection, out of resonance with one's own natural goodness. And uh, I read a Jataka tale at the end, and the Jataka tale ended. It was a, it was a story about uh, a, 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 a hunter in the forest who had fallen into a pit and a great ape who was actually a former incarnation of the Buddha uh, went down into the pit and pulled up this person with great effort and brought him up to safety and said, I need to lie down now and uh, rest so I'll have enough strength to lead you out of this forest so you stand guard over me while I sleep here. And it goes on to say, the uh, hunter, after a while, the ape was sleeping and he thought to himself, I'm really very, very hungry. I'm so hungry. I need to eat this ape. And he picked up an enormous boulder and with all his strength threw it on the sleeping ape who woke up with a start and stood up with a tear in his eye and said, you poor man, now you never will be happy again. And it ends like that. And everybody said, oh, and they really sounded like, okay. And then Amara came up before I left. And she said, I'm not so happy with the end of that story, in essence. She said, the end of the story makes it sound like there's no way ever to make amends for, for some uh, impulsive, immoral deed that... There's no, uh, there's no reconciliation. There's no, um, there's no atonement. You can't, can you never make amends for things in your life? You have to, there's no end to, uh, what about remorse, uh, genuine remorse and contrition that really changes the mind to compassion and transforms it to kindness? Are we destined to so I said, listen, this is a very good, how many people think that's a, I thought it was a very good question. So I said, I'll think about that and I'll talk about it the next time. Two seconds after Amara said that, Mark came up and he said, I really need you to read this book. This is a very good book that I've just read called At Hell's Gate, A Soldier's Journey from War to Peace. And he lent me his copy of the book which I read immediately and sent off to Amazon because I needed to yellow it all up with underliners. So, uh, so those are the two things I've been thinking about uh, in, in these weeks while preparing to come back. And the first thing I thought about, I thought, well, what, what else do I know from Buddhist literature that has to do with the transformation of the mind and what happens? And the... Uh, uh, the story that comes most immediately to people's minds is the story of Angulimala. And uh, it is said that once upon a time, there was a, in the time of the Buddha, there was a, a man whose name was Angulimala. And Angulimala means um, bracelet of fingers. Um, a mala is a bracelet, you know. 
uh, it means garland, actually, a garland of fingers. And Angulimala was called Garland of Fingers because he had believed a particular teacher that he had who he thought was a spiritually valid teacher whose teachings he followed as best he could, whose instructions he followed. He had believed that for him to become spiritually liberated, he would need to kill a thousand people. And so he was keeping score and killing systematically a thousand people. And he had killed 999 people. He needed one more and he came upon the Buddha walking by the way. And there was his thousandth person. And he began to chase after the Buddha and run after him. And magically, as fast as he ran, the Buddha was walking serenely along the road. And uh, as, as fast as Angulimala could run, it seemed like he couldn't catch the Buddha. The Buddha was walking along slowly, and by some strange way that things work. You know what I think about? You know, like when you have a nightmare, and uh, uh, you need to get somewhere or out of a building or to a building or something or other, and your feet become like like lead, and you can't, and you're trying to run away, and you can't run. Do you ever have a nightmare like that? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that where you try to speed up, but in slow motion, you can't do it. So Angulimala shouts out, stop, 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 at, to the Buddha, who turns around and says, I stopped a long time ago. When are you going to stop? Angulimala, in that moment, speaking, remember I mentioned before, uh, a kind of universalist uh, understanding of the term mindfulness bell, something that happens that you think, wait a minute, I have to think things over. I, I, get, I need a new perspective here. So for Angulimala, that was a mindfulness bell. He stopped. And he realized, it doesn't say so much in the story. It just tells the story and you're supposed to get it. But I'm, I'm sure you get it in the same way that I do, that he stopped. And all of a sudden, he realizes that uh, this uh, intensive, um, this in, uh, intense... Uh, drivenness to kill people is not consistent with his with his desire to have a liberated and peaceful mind, and um, that to continue with, driven by something that he needed to do, and in fact driven by such a um, inhumane thing to do, was not going to be the cause of his liberation. That's all I'm, I'm, I am now documenting with what I think he realized it in that moment. But he realized that the, uh, the sense that the Buddha uh, radiated by not being afraid, <clears throat> by being peacefully walking along, by being able to perhaps radiate such a field of equanimity and loving kindness as to literally stop him in his tracks, that that was a person that was really liberated from... <laughs> the normal fears and anxieties and uh, tensions of a regular pe person. Here's the Buddha, a person who hasn't got a regular mind. He's got a liberated mind. He's invulnerable, and he's not frightened. When our visitor a little while ago said, I'd like to not be frightened, I think fundamentally, if we all thought about it, what, what's the meaning 
of I'd like to be liberated, I'd like my mind to be free. We could probably say it in a lot of ways, but you know, I, I think a principal underpinning of all the ways would be I don't want to be frightened by any of the many things that can challenge me, that can and will certainly challenge me in my life between now and ever. May I not be frightened by life. May I be up for the, even when we sit and, and sit and just wait for the next breath and the next moment, people say, you know, is there praying in your tradition? Do you think of mindfulness as a prayer? Well, I do, uh, even though I am not generally saying to myself, minute to minute, moment to moment, may I meet this next moment with equanimity and openness and grace and forbearance and patience and without contention. I don't say that for minute to minute, but I think that sitting down with the intention to be present and open to what's happening is as much as making that prayer. They may this happen. Not only may this happen, but may it manifest then ongoingly as a mind habit of mine. I think that's implicit in it. When you say, I'm practicing mindfulness, you say, towards what end? You know, what is this? Why would... It's not only for this moment. Of course, this moment is the only thing that ever exists. But I think inherent in undertaking any kind of a discipline is the idea that the mind can change. Change its habits from habits of reactivity and ha habits of impulsivity to habits of reflection and thoughtfulness and consideration and kindness and compassion. That when the mind is not confused by all the uh, opposites of those, then what happens is uh, we intuit empathically that the situation of being alive is difficult and challenging for everyone. And we're converted to kindness. Just as when we sit at the end of our sitting and we say, I'm thinking of this one, I'm thinking of that one. We don't know of the person who's even speaking up. I rarely open my eyes and look around. Sometimes I recognize somebody's voice and some, mostly not. So I don't know the person and I don't know the person that they're praying for. But all of a sudden you know the situation and it resonates in you. And you think, oh, may it be so that this is eased. May it be so that this is eased. And in fact, if I really were to parse it apart, I would realize that the, the, that the response in my mind, even if I say, may it be so, or I just feel, yes, indeed, whatever, does two things. One of the things it does is it, um, it rebalances my mind. It gentles my mind. And you hear something that's a, a difficult, difficult thing that's happened to somebody. It's a startle in the mind, especially, that we realize anything can happen to anybody. When we hear something, someone's pregnancy is challenged. And maybe we're about to have a pregnancy, or we're having a pregnancy, or our child is having a pregnancy, or we know someone with a pregnancy. We uh-oh, that could happen. May this situation be eased. I think it rebalances my own mind when it's been stirred. And by the rebalancing, it allows the natural compassion of the heart to manifest, which feels good. It just, I, I think that that's one of the basics of being a, a human organism, that when we, when we uh, are manifesting the loving beings that we are, we feel good. It's like we're playing in the right key. 
Uh, we're not disharmonious with ourselves. And we're connected to people and life, not just even the people that we know, but these people who we just heard about through somebody else. Some person out there has this challenge, and my heart responds to it with kindness. They're actually giving me a gift. We give each other a gift by saying, I know a person. They say, oh, and my heart responds with kindness. So I think we're really, um, for at least for me, it, it, um, it uh, resets my thermostat to a kinder temperature. If, uh, it's always true for me that if I come, however I come here on a Wednesday, in the best of shape, sometimes not in the best of shape, sometimes challenged or whatever, or uh, dis disrupted in my thought or disturbed with what's going on in my mind, I always leave better, you know? I even have the thought, maybe it's not such a good day to show up because you want to show up in the most open mind. It doesn't matter how I show up, that we, that we all show up and collectively my mind gets better, not, you know, from what you say as much as from what I say, that, that we, we um, it's like a fueling station or a tuning station. Yeah, I just had this image the first second, the first time I've had that image. <coughs> you know when you go to a symphony and uh, you're, you know, you're ready for them to play, an orchestra, and you're ready for them to play, and uh, before the conductor comes out, the concertmaster comes out and plays an A, and everybody tunes that A. So I thought maybe this is like tuning up. You know, we come here and we tune up, and then we go out and we, and we live the rest of our lives. I hope that's what we are, like a tuning up. So the Angulimala story, the end of the Angulimala story, though, is that Angulimala is uh, totally transformed in his ways. Not only does he stop what he does, but he uh, becomes a devotee of the Buddha. He eventually joins the Buddha's order. Um, he's a, a dedicated monk. I don't remember whether at the end of the story he himself is free from all fetters, but the story that, the, the, in, in most of the versions of the story that I've read, he becomes completely converted to peace. Nevertheless, when the Buddha's uh, travels through different places with his entourage and people recognize Angulimala, they throw things at him and they revile him and they shout epithets at him and um, they express all the feelings that they had about him when he was doing what he was doing formally. And Angulimala is uh, equanimous throughout, not responsive, just manages to keep his mind balanced. And I thought about that, I've thought about that, and I thought about it since two weeks ago when Amara brought that up, that in a certain, that, that, that it makes sense to me that people might, uh, driven to impulsivity by what they remember, do a thing like that, but that a sign of his genuine conversion is to be able to not have it bring out any behavior, that he could remain equanimous in the middle of it. And I thought, well, maybe that's a way of saying that he's uh, living out his karma in a certain way. I'm not sure at all about karma in other lifetimes, about if you do this, then this will happen in the next lifetime. 
because I'm not so sure about next lifetimes and how that works. So, but in this lifetime, uh, I usually, when I'm thinking about karma in this lifetime, I think if I'm a, a pleasant person, that when I'm old, I'll have a lot of friends. So that won't be an accident. It will be the karmic fruit of my having been a pleasant person all along. If I'm not a pleasant person, when I'm old, it won't be some divine punishment that comes through some outside agency. It will be the fruit of my own behavior. And so that every action is planting the seeds of our own karma. So I, I thought that that was a, uh, a way that I understood that. Then, um, then Mark lent me uh, his book from the library, which I've, so that now I read Mark's book, then I got mine from Amazon and underlined it, so I've read it twice. Uh, and uh, I keep being very moved by it. In essence, uh, I want to read you a partic particular part. That, it's a story about this man, Claude Anshin Thomas, who was uh, born into a family of very angry people who are, whose anger is out of control. His father dies at 53. He said, my father died from alcohol and tobacco and rage attacks. Father died at 53. His mother, um, he tells an episode with his mother where he... Uh, asked if he could take his, uh, go out on his bicycle. And uh, he was poised, they, they lived in an apartment building. So his, uh, his, I think his mother said no, but he took his bicycle out and he was poised at the top of a flight of stairs. And his mother threw him down the flight of stairs with the bicycle. So it was, it's hard to read some of these descriptions of the cruelty that he experienced when he was a child. Then he graduated from high school and uh, a very confused, using alcohol, using drugs. Um, and he said um, he actually got a scholarship to college because he was a very outstanding athlete. And his father said, um, don't go to college, go to the, you need to go in the service, they'll make a man out of you. And uh, So he enlists in the Marines and um, Maybe I'll read you one. No, it's, it's too horrible. He enlists in the Marines, and uh, his father drives him to the uh, bus station to take the bus from his town to Erie, Pennsylvania, from whence he's going to go to Fort Dix, from whence he's going to be inducted into the Marines. And uh, he said, my father took me to the bus station, and um, I got out of the car, he got out of the car, and then my father got back in the car and drove away. He said, no hug, not even a handshake, nothing. Just got back in the car and went away. And, you know, I think to myself uh, that uh, I think his father, it's, 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 it's part of what's understood. He says all the time, my father had no way of dealing with any emotion at all other than drinking and doing drugs. And, I, you know, I, I'm even thinking that his father in his own way loved him and would have was also moved by the fact that he was going away, but he had no way to deal with it other than turn around and go back into the bus. I don't think it was a willful act of anger. I would think it was the only thing that he could, that he had learned to do. 
And then he tells graphic accounts, which are really incredible to read, of the, of the level of cruelty in, uh, in marine basic training, uh, the least of which is uh, being called out uh, by a drunken drill sergeant at 2 o'clock in the morning to stand naked in the rain in, uh, with your boots on for some long period of time just uh, to have them uh, hurl obscenities at you. Uh, he said, in the end, and not to be able to respond, he said, in the end, what, 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 what any kind of good feeling dies in you, and the only thing that's left is intense, violent rage. And then what they've got is a Marine ready to go out and murder, because you murder anything that moves at that point. And, uh, and he went to Vietnam, and he killed a lot of people. He killed a lot of soldiers and a lot of, um, and a lot of civilians in those kind of helicopter aerial raids where you go over town and you just shoot everybody. I won't read you that part. Um, He's wounded, and he gets out of the army. I had been trained to be a killer and never helped to become anything other than a killer. And then I was let loose, left to my own devices. Uh, so he's out of the hospital. Uh, I, my, and I, he said, uh, uh, I got my immediate reaction. He said, when I went home, um, if I heard a firecracker, I fell on the floor thinking it was a gun going off. The people standing around me all laughed because my body was in a cast. He'd been severely wounded. I struggled to get up. Finally, on my feet, in panic and embarrassment, I started to run. But it was the laughter. They laughed at me. This was more painful than the bullets. I ran and ran and ran, trying to run away from my feelings, run to safety. I didn't stop running until 1983, which was set many years later. My running took the form of alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, sex, moving from place to place. I, I married my college sweetheart. I started college. I was incapable of intimacy. This marriage did not last. Uh, I had many relationships when I was in college. None of them lasted. I don't know if I had any real intention that they last, but somewhere in my mind I kept telling myself before each encounter that this was the one. And he said, as soon as I had conquered a new person and I didn't feel any better, I went on to another one. It's tremendously, tremendously sad. Then he goes on to say, <coughs> Vietnam is all over the place. He said the war in the Vietnam, the dehumanizing of others is what's key. It happened in Vietnam and the Persian Gulf and Kosovo. It happens in the streets of Los Angeles, Hartford, Denver, Cleveland, or any town, the wars that take place in our homes, what are the seeds of those wars? They're the expression of something that begins inside each and every one of us, male or female. We all possess the seeds of violence, the seeds of war. At some point, he talks about having recognized that Stopping. It's, it's similar to the Angulimala story. At that point, I stopped. 
He said, I stopped, uh, I stopped the drugs, I stopped the alcohol, I stopped the promiscuous sex, I stopped using nicotine, I stopped using caffeine, I stopped eating processed sugar, I stopped eating meat, I stopped going from one relationship to another. I kept coming more and more back to myself and my commitment to heal, even though I did not understand what it was that I was doing. And then at some point, he met Thich Nhat Hanh. And he said, um, Thich Nhat, he went to a, uh, a retreat for veterans that Thich Nhat Hanh was teaching. Thich Nhat Hanh said to us, you veterans are the light at the tip of the candle. You burn hot and bright. You understand deeply the nature of suffering. He told us that the only way to heal, to transform suffering, is to stand face to face with suffering, to realize the intimate details of suffering and how our life in the present is affected by it. He encouraged us to talk about our experience and told us that we deserve to be listened to, deserve to be understood. He said we represented a powerful force for healing in the world. See, it makes, it makes me tearful to think that these are the people who were jeered and reviled when they came home. He said, I began to understand at a very deep and profound level the truth of uh, the sincerity of the offer, of the offer by Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, to come and live with his community in Plum Village. In war, it's impossible to, said I didn't trust him. In war, it's impossible to distinguish safe from unsafe, good from bad. It's, it's quite like the confusion of, abused chi- of an abused child. All adults become potential abusers, even those who sincerely want to help. And in the Vietnam, in the Plum Village community, they loved him. And when he confessed to uh, any of the teachers there, Thich Nhat Hanh, his assistant, that he had uh, refused to move into the tent cabins that people were staying in, and that he had camped out in the woods because he didn't feel safe near people, and that he actually uh, booby-trapped the perimeter around his, you know, not with dynamite, but with things that would alert him to the presence of anyone approaching him, that he had booby-trapped his whole area so that he could lie down, and anyway he couldn't sleep. And at some point later on, he's, he was he told uh, Sister Fang, I think, and he said, I, I confessed about the booby trap. And she said, uh, well, you know, I'm glad that he'd taken it down. She said, I'm glad you'd taken it down. She said, anytime you feel a need to put it up again, put it up again. You know, it really gives you the ultimate, ultimate space to recognize your own pain. And I think that really it became, I can't read you the whole book, but um, but it's a very, it, it, it goes on and on because it becomes, in short, he comes back from Thich Nhat Hanh, he uh, uh, works for years with Bernie Glassman in the nonviolent um, order, order of peacemakers at Bernie Glassman, who's a Zen Roshi in New York City. Had they, they did the pilgrimage retreats. He is, at the time of the writing of this book, still a pilgrimage monk going from place to place, teaching about converting the mind from nonviolence to peace. 
in actual fact, a logistical fact, not just talking about it, they had, uh, they did um, workshops and retreats sitting on the tracks going into Auschwitz. Uh, he was part of the eight-month walk that began in April of 1945 in Auschwitz that was 50 years from the, um, commemorating 50 years from the liberation of Auschwitz. I always get goosebumps when I tell about this. What, my friend Sheila was there at that ceremony on the very day, 50 years from the day that Auschwitz had been liberated, the uh, uh, 100 perhaps, a lot of peacemaking um, teachers from around the world assembled there in Auschwitz to begin a walk from, uh, from Auschwitz, which is in Poland, to Tokyo to be there uh, April, anyway, in uh, August on the 50th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. Um, and um, um, Mahagosananda was there, who was the senior prelate in Cambodia, the senior Buddhist monk. I've told you about him on other, uh, on a, in other stories. Mahagosananda was there. My friend Sheila was there. She said it was impossible to, to describe the sentiment because what they did is they left from Auschwitz that day, but they symbolically, let's see if I can, they symbolically opened the gates and these people walked out. And you think about the, the hundreds of thousands of people who didn't walk out. And uh, it's impossible to, to, to think about that circumstance, that people did it purposely. Sometimes there are, I mean, it, that we are all so struck by the natural disaster in, in Japan a week ago that happened. You know, there's an earthquake. There was uh, what happened in um, Haiti a, a year ago. Uh, and you think, you think of the desolation and the pain, and there's, a, there's the element of those, are the, the, those things happen in the natural world where there are earthquakes. But uh, intentional genocide doesn't happen as a result of a natural world. That happens as a result <coughs> of violence uh, run amok in people's minds. And so his book becomes really a passionate plea for practice. Not uh, he, he is a... a a spokesperson out in the world talking on behalf of peace. But it's fundamental to the book is you cannot be that. You cannot be a spokesperson on behalf of anything unless you've done it yourself. And that it's not a once job. That the, the job of converting one's mind and heart to peace is ongoing. I've been thinking about it um, in terms of myself. And how easy it is, I, I, you know, I hope I don't run amok and, and you know, do real mayhem in the world, but every moment that I harbor an unkind thought about somebody, uh, a judgmental thought about somebody, that's uncensored in my mind, and in, which means I haven't noticed that I've caused myself pain by thinking about it, and I'm actually watering a little bit of that tendency to think, mm, 
about somebody. I could think uh, in, a, in a quiet mind about this or that person who I discern is not making wise and skillful choices on behalf of the world. And I could think to myself, I'd like to do everything I can to work for the change so that that person couldn't continue to do those unskillful things on behalf of the world. But I could do it without making my mind murderous, without making my mind um, murderous. I don't know what's a better word for it. Um, it's very jarring. I'm sure it is to you when someone says, I hate so-and-so, you know? Uh, that'd be a good word not to have in the vocabulary if we could. Whatever it is, even, you know, I hate trigonometry. You know, you get the feeling when somebody says that what they mean to say is trigonometry is a real challenge for me. You know, that, but that, that's another way to say that without making your mind alter. Nobody gets hurt if you think I hate trigonometry, but you hurt your own mind. And you actually make it more difficult to approach your homework with an open mind because you're already it's your enemy. And that's just the level of your trigonometry homework. You know, if you think, well, trigonometry's a challenge. I wonder who wants to do their homework with me. I wonder if I can call up my friend so-and-so and I can go over to their house and we can work on the homework together. Just to make anything my enemy. And, you know, on the one hand, it's very uplifting to me to think that because I think, wow, that's really what we're doing here, moment to moment with mindfulness. Because in, if the definition of mindfulness, but I want to read you one that's near the end of this book that was very, very well, so well said. I think I must have in my career said the definition of mindfulness a billion times. Well, not a billion, that's a lot. But uh, a lot of times, but... This was a very, 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 oh, fooey. Now I'm not going to find it. Um, such a good definition of mindfulness in such plain speech. Wait. Wait. Ah. No, not ah. Yes, ah. Here it is. He's giving actually instructions. Okay. My encounter with Buddhism introduced me to conscious living. Conscious living. So what I'd like to suggest is that living mindfully is conscious living. That's what we're doing. So when we sit here and we're being with the breath, it's not to notice about the breath. It's to be alive consciously, knowing what's happening, paying attention to the smallest detail of thought, feeling, and perception. And the term that defines this way of living is mindfulness. As a way of living, mindfulness helps me to wake up to and move out of cycles of destructiveness and suffering. Living mindfully with more awareness is not a new approach. This teaching has existed for more than 2,600 years. It's not specifically a Buddhist teaching, although it was taught explicitly by the Buddha as part of the Eightfold Path. Mindfulness expresses the heart of all spiritual teachings. And the heart of all spiritual teachings is mindfulness. Mindfulness is simply being completely in the present moment, here, now. It's recognizing that there's nothing else but this moment. 
Buddhism offers some powerful practices that can aid us in realizing what pulls us away again and again from living fully in the here and now. So when you think about those practices, uh, they would be the practices of uh, loving kindness, probably, or of inquiry, what just happened now, what, uh, what happened to my mind, that I am not in connection with my own good heart at this point. I, 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 I remember saying uh, some years ago that my own daily practice was, uh, was people say, well, how much mindfulness practice do you do every day? Which I think means how much do you sit down in your house in a quiet way, in a quiet corner, and have some dedicated meditation time, which I think is actually very important. I think it's, I think it's a, a foundational thing. It's sort of like what I said over here. It's like, it's like uh, tuning so that we can then play together in this orchestra of life. But in addition to that, I think mindfulness practice, well, so it would be somewhat cavalier or glib to say you're supposed to practice from the moment. I hope I practice from the moment I get up in the morning until the moment I fall asleep at night. But I actually hope I do. But it doesn't mean that all day long I'm with the breath or all day long I'm making meta resolves. It means that when I'm in the DMV and it's taking too long for them to call my number, I'm not thinking bad thoughts on the DMV for not having more people working or the state budget for not allocating more to the DMVs or the governor for having done this or the people for having voted that. It's that I'm noticing that my mind at that point is um, fermenting a kind of hostile environment. It's like you put, you know, it just occurred to me, you could have the image of a Petri dish. You know, you put something in it that's a, um, a noxious element, some sort of a, a bacterium, and then you put it in a, in a sterile Petri dish, and it starts, it starts poisoning the whole Petri dish by growing all over it. On the other hand, if uh, you don't put any seeds in it, or if the seed falls in and you dump it out, you, you really you don't have that kind of proliferation of noxiousness in the mind. You don't get sick. You know, if you really think about it, um, when you read this, something like this particular story of this person uh, and his, his, the way that he was brought up and the way that the Marine Corps treated him, it was really the willful poisoning of a mind so that it does something that's so antithetical to the fundamental human impulse of caring. Here came this baby today that nobody knows, nobody knows her mother, but all of a sudden, I, you know, I'm sure that we we're all delighted to see such a baby. Look at that, a baby getting blessed by a beautiful mother who wants very much to not be anguished and, and frightened in her life. We don't know them, but we're glad. I think Mother, we're really glad that she's here. Because I think that we have the kind of heart that delights in the good, really, and, and really thrives with it. You know, a little bit I'm thinking about when we say at the end of um, a teaching, I have to mind, it's time to make an end to this teaching, when we say, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I think it's not just a, a, an idle pledge of allegiance that, that you don't think about the meaning of, or I hope that we think about the meaning of, that actually 
the idea is that not that one would actually have the capacity to think of every being in the world, but that one would think of having a heart that would be open to every being in the world. That would feel really, that would be an amazingly liberated heart, not afraid of anything, not afraid of anything coming into the consciousness. No, no, don't tell me that. No, 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 don't tell me this. Tell me anything, whatever. It's all right. It's okay. Because I meet it with kind I, I wish. I wish this was the way that I lived all the time. It's my practice. It's not what I can do all the time. But it's what I wish I could do all the time. Okay, so we ran out of time. But... Hmm? You know what? I, I, I have in mind what to do next week. Uh, so this is a... Uh, a preview. Maybe we'll do it. Um, first of all, I think there's a way you can do this, although I don't know exactly how. I'm going to be interviewed on a radio program to, on, on, on a, by phone tomorrow for something that I'm, I'm sure you probably listened to on your computer. Anyway, this is called Sacred Awakening Series. So if you want to Google Sacred Awakening Series, it says that X many people will be able to hear this broadcast, and many of them will be listening to it in real time. I don't know how to do that. But if you, uh, it's tomorrow at 5 o'clock. So if you Google Sacred Awakening the- Series, it might tell you how to listen to it in real time. And then there are a whole bunch of questions. There are different spiritual teachers teaching every day for some period of time. So tomorrow is my day. And uh, it's got 14 questions here about a spiritual path. And uh, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of deciding about whether it'd be good for me to study them in advance or just do them, which is probably what I'll do. Uh, but it'll be interesting to talk about. Uh, here's the one that was most interesting. What do you find is the most pressing concern in people's hearts these days, and how do they respond to it? Isn't that interesting? What do you see is the most important uh, gem from your tradition that could benefit the world at this time? Um, How do you see our current time and the evolution of our culture and our consciousness? I can't do that because that... I mean... I'm really not a sociologist or an anthropologist. It's better for me to only answer questions that I think I'm capable of answering. But uh, Anyway, is that interesting to you? You want to know how it goes next week? I'll tell you what I talked about. Thank you very much for being here. I hope you have a good week. Yes. They can go on. That'll be recorded in real time for you, but then you can pull it up in the archives so they can listen to you. Anytime. So, anytime, yeah. Can I just make a quick announcement? Yes. We're looking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.